Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the AgView Pitch. And on today, you have Shay and Shay in the morning, and this is uh, Shay Folk with uh, Shay Myers. How are you doing today, Shay? Um, it's good to talk to you, Shay. I don't want to get too many uh, other Shays out there. No, I agree, and glad we could finally get linked in here. I know uh, last week here has been crazy busy for you. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I wonder if you could just uh, you know give a little bit of an overview to our listeners here on who you are, what you do, and kind of what you're about. Sure. Um, Shay Myers, uh, third generation farm kid. Um, and, uh, I guess I, I get to call myself CEO now of Owyhee Produce. We're a vertically integrated farming operation. We grow, um, nine different row crops. Uh, and I am in charge of marketing, uh, and sales and packing for, um, asparagus, sweet potatoes and onions. Um, and the highest volume probably, you know, Play for the where the biggest player is with onions. Um, I came back to the operation in 2000 and uh, let's see 2005, and uh, that's when we started doing fresh packed onions. And we've kind of done the vertical integration thing and tried to follow our crop as far along as we can, and haven't looked back since. No, that's fantastic. And there's lots of questions that I'm going to pull out of there for the listeners' benefits. Um, what are the other row crops that you're running there? Sure. So um, we're going to do asparagus. Um, beans, corn. Um, I gotta go through all of them. They're gonna make me mint, <laughs> hemp, um, onions, wheat, and what have I skipped? Okay. Circus beans, corn. Yeah. Sorry, but it, it gets always hard to count them, count them all out. I'm missing some. Oh, peas. I skipped peas in there. Right. And, and where, where exactly is your operation there? So we're right on the Oregon-Idaho border. So we farm on both sides, um, just about 50 miles west of Boise, Idaho. So we're in what's gotcha. called the Treasure Valley, the Snake River Valley here um, outside of Boise. Yeah, beautiful area. I've actually been through that and a uh, good place to, to live and grow up. So when you say third generation on the farm, has a, you know the dynamics of the farming operation always looked uh, that complex, I guess? Uh, it's obviously gotten more complex as we've, we we're, as we're now collaborating cousins, but, um, you know, we really still have all three generations operating together on a daily basis. Um, uh, we just lost my grandfather about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. Um, but my grandmother is still, um, actively involved from, uh, AR and AP. Um, so she's there all the time and kind of keeps tabs on what's happening. And then, um, my uncle, and my mom are both actively um, participating in the operation with my uncle being the president of the farming um, side and him working with um, a son and, and a son-in-law. And then my mom, um, she is really our chief operations officer at Owyhee, and then she's the one that really spearheaded our asparagus program, and she runs the operations on the asparagus as well. So that that's the part that I guess um, hasn't changed yet because we haven't had to do sig- significant succession planning up to now. I mean, that's in plans, but it's not actively happening. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm going to run down that path too on the, on the collaboration and the transition planning. So as many of the clients and listeners know, that's something that um, Chris Barron and myself work specifically on with, with farming operations. So, you know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the collaboration that you're in. You mentioned, the cousins as part of that collaboration and, and what that looks like for one, 
and then what are some of the, the challenges and uh, the benefits, I guess, that are associated with, you know, being in a collaborative situation? Yeah, I, we all bring different dynamics um, to play. Um, the collaborating side that's really beneficial and, and really what has been our strength and specifically in the onion industry is being the farming operation and the packer. Um, lots of times and in lots of parts of the country and, and when it comes to fresh produce, it's a, a packer, it's a custom packer, and they really don't do much or any farming. They specialize mm -hmm. in packing and, and sometimes marketing. Um, and the farmers, they, they contract with farmers and bring the product in. Um, that has been that collaboration between the farm and the packing and really working as if it's the same unit has been a very, very powerful um, and significant advantage for us especially in my, at least in my opinion, because we're able to really adapt and change and move so much more quickly than what our competitors can that are either just growers or just packers. Um, and when it comes to collaborating and working together, so the way that it works right now is we've taken the farm and all those crops that are mentioned. And my uncle Craig is, and it's the one initially started with all the knowledge over every single crop. And that's been passed on, but he hasn't taught um, my cousin Chase is an example, who's probably the next key player in the farm. He hasn't taught Chase everything about every commodity. He's split off, and, and Craig has kept some of those commodities, and Chase has been over specific other commodities so that it's not overload. And also because going forward, we found that by having um, an expert within the operation on each crop, we can do a lot better job. You can attend the, the training seminars. You can understand the subtleties of that crop better than if you try and be kind of a jack of all trades, which, you know, farmers really get spread thin anyway. So we've tried to eliminate how, how much that happens. Right. Well, and having so many people in the operation that, you know, like you said, that specificity and the efficiency gained in those, those roles in the operation, I, I think is huge. Now, along with that too, I know not only in collaborative models that we work with, but especially in family operations, uh, you know, communication can become either something that opens the business up to new opportunities, or it can be something that is a real bottleneck within the operation. So I guess, how do you, you know, how does a family deal with that uh, between the cropping entities and between those key players in the operation? Yeah, so we try to have, and this was actually just recently implemented, I and mean, we have lots of what we call family board meetings or operation meetings, um, especially throughout the winter. But we've tried to um, and started doing what we call our Tuesday lunch meeting. So everyone comes to the, to the conference room one time a week, and we try and kind of give an update about what's going on to facilitate exactly what you're talking about. It's hard to know. Uh, it, with our size of operation, and we're not huge, but we're sizable enough that it's hard for me to know all of the subtleties, or at least the subtleties I need to understand within the farm of what's going on and what decisions are being made. And they also need to understand on the packing and marketing side what's working and what's not working, maybe what lots have trouble in them or what what changes need to be made for sizing or for, um, you know, skin retention or whatever it might be. So we can have that type of conversation as much as possible, but communication, I can't say that we do it perfect or that we even do it well, but we are making as conceited of an effort, um, direct of an effort as we can, knowing that we have to communicate better. In fact, we did a, a an evaluation, which is for the first time we've ever done that too, and, and we all did 
um, evaluations of one another and communication came up as one of our biggest weaknesses. So we knew that it was something that we needed to go after and work on. Right. With that weekly meeting, does it happen to be in the same place at the same time and with the same agenda every meeting? Yes. Well, yep. the agenda changes, but it's the same place, same, you know, same time every single week. Because not everyone's going to be able to be there every time. And the whole point is we're having a meeting. If you can't be there, don't. But if you can, great. And we're going to have it with or without you. Right. No, that's fantastic. I think there's so many key lessons in there. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different people that, that we work with on the consulting side that do a fantastic job of doing that. And there's a lot of good books and, uh, you know, references out there. Traction is one that, you know, kind of follows a similar model to that, that uh, with a lot of operations we work with, we find to be highly effective too. So I think that communication piece is, you know, absolutely crucial. Um, so, so to go down a little bit of a different path back up here a little bit, with all the differences in uh, crops that you're running there, you know, you mentioned the nine different row crops. It's different from some of the listeners that we have that are heavy in, you know, corn, wheat, soybeans, uh, cotton, peanuts, those sorts of things. What do you think the difference is in farm operations that are running uh, vegetable crops, such as the asparagus or the sweet potatoes or beans, What's different in a farming operation that has that sort of diversity and that sort of complexity? And what do you think, you know, different row crop operators could learn from that sort of system? That's a good question. That's actually a really good question. Um, And I don't know if I have a straightforward answer. I mean, I'd love well, to pass on I, something I, that folks can learn from. Well, them. and I don't think it needs to be a key piece of, you know, golden nugget or anything like that. But one thing that, you know, we, we've kind of observed when looking at operations of that sort of complexity is a lot of times uh, those operations, especially in vegetable production, have a whole different idea of what a farm means and what it looks like and almost looking at it more from a, a manufacturing standpoint, right? And you're not okay. – just mm-hmm. manufacturing, uh, you know, bushels of corn or bushels of soybeans, but you're manufacturing cash based on the product that you're producing, sure. and so much of that gets dialed into cost of production. So do you think that there's a, a more important look at cost of production in the vegetable side versus other row crops? Well, I, I, I think it's important in every scenario, but you did prime the pump a little bit on something that that we can – that could be learned um, from from maybe what we're doing in row crops versus commodity crops. And, and what I would say that is, is the importance of following your crops all the way until the sale, until it's done. If we've really learned anything, and this, we were still specialty crop growers beforehand. We were still doing, you know, all of these other crops 10 years ago, but we weren't doing our, our marketing. That started in 2005 after I came back from college and, we weren't doing our own packing. And what, what we thought initially would be a value was, okay, well, now we have a packing operation. Well, just because you can take an onion or a bean or a, a, asparagus and put it in a crate or a bag doesn't mean that it's sold. Mm-hmm. And when we look at commodity, and I still fight this um, a little bit with, with what, who I call the farm, with my uncle especially, who's, who didn't have the marketing um, side of the business in existence when he started and he wants to take his onion and he's done harvesting he he largely wants to forget about it Mm -hmm. 
and and that's because he's worked his butt off constantly for seven or eight months. You know, long hours, tons of work, constant attention, and he wants to unplug and step back and say, okay, now now Shay, it's your problem. Right. But if he didn't have me in this position, and he just makes a delivery, and he unplugs. I, I can guarantee you that he would get less money. And I yep. wonder how much the, the guys with um, these commodity crops that you're talking about can do the same thing. If they pay attention once you're in the bin to how that crop sold and they don't just deliver it, how much more it would affect their bottom line. Right. Well, and, and I think that goes back to one of the key points that, you know, we work specifically with producers on, and that is a cost of production analysis to knowing truly what your cost of production is, and, and then when can you make those marketing decisions. And if your market is showing that you are above your cost of production level, you know, you need to you need to take that information and put it up on the mirror and look at yourself in the mirror and say, why am I not making sales right now at a profitable level? And especially during times, you know, when commodity prices, we're looking at, you know, 320 cash corn and 840 uh, cash soybeans right now. You know, that may not be above your cost production level, but could it go the other way? Should you be making some sales at somewhat of a loss right now so that you can recover uh, further down the road? And, and I think, too, you know, with that collaboration you have is identifying who in the operation has the strengths in that. Just because someone has always done the marketing does not mean that they need to continue to take on that role. Uh, there's someone, you know, like yourself that can come in that, might be not necessarily better at it, but might be enjoy doing it more, have more time and attention uh, to put towards it. Is that a fair statement? That's an absolutely fair statement because it's, it goes back to the same thing. There's plenty of people that have packing operations. They're the farmer, and then they're trying to run their packing operations, but they can't do the sales because they're so busy doing everything else. And that's that is important. And it's it's a it's there's a there's a threshold. There's a um, you know a tipping point when it's worth it. And there's it's hard when you're not you're not large enough in some ways to say okay well it is worth it or to pull the trigger and say yeah it is worth it having help having someone who can pay additional attention to our processes and procedures and help us analyze or pay attention when to sell or not to sell but you know you can make sometimes a very very small decision um or making the right decision can have dramatic impacts on on your profitability right Right. Well, and one thing, too, is, you know, looking at size of operations. So one thing that uh, Chris and I see with a lot of the collaborative models and, and people that we work with is all of a sudden when you start pulling some of these resources together and you don't just have, uh, you know, 10,000 or 15,000 bushels of, of grain to market, but you're working with other farm operations or other family members and you pool those resources together and now all of a sudden you're talking a quarter million bushels of of corn to market, then you can go to some of these producers or, you know, the ethanol plant or the Cargills of the world, whoever it is, and sit down and have a discussion and say, hey, you know, we we have this amount of commodity sitting here. We want to work with you to, you know, negotiate a better price or negotiate a better uh, basis, whatever it may be. What can we do to work together? And, and how does that look down road. And so, you know, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think it's such a crucial point that it's not specific to corn or soybean industry too. There's lots of it going on in farm operations all across America. Yeah. So another thing uh, that I wanted to ask you about, I guess, is, 
you mentioned with the family operation, you know, your third generation there, there's tons that I'm sure you learned not only growing up, but then even beyond that of coming back into the operation. Who have you, you know, pulled some of some of the most important pieces of, of wisdom and, and learning from? Was it people inside the family? Did you have someone outside of the family that helped you? You know, how did that look like in, in your role? And so I, I got a lot of help from several different parts or people in my in my family. My mom is really the the entrepreneurial type. Her mindset is, you know, looking at something and, and my dad actually who's actually a banker who's not in, in the family business, but they they would always look at a business, whether it was ours or something else or opportunities and always, you know, analyze and critique and tear it apart. And somehow that stuck with me. That that idea of looking at at things a little bit differently instead of kind of accepting the status quo or or taking things as they are and saying, okay, well, how can you tweak that or how can you change it? How can you tear that apart and build it up into something better? Um, so I have that part. And then and that, that came from my, both of my parents. My Uncle Craig, I grew up around him all the time, and he is just very intelligent and very analytical, and he's also fairly progressive in accepting, um, you know, new practices and uh, willing to um, take risks that um, in, in the growing practice that a lot of people wouldn't. In fact, you know, one of the best examples of that is drip irrigation. This part of the country for onions is almost 95% drip irrigation, but that's happened to really over the last five years. We were doing drip irrigation 20 years ago. He, he was one of the first people to use drip irrigation um, for onion production in the country. Wow. Um, and so he was, he was just innovative that way. And then you, you take little pieces from my grandfather, who was just a, a super hard worker, but also willing to and desirous to grow his business. He, he didn't take, even for the last 10 years he was, he was alive, he didn't even take a salary mm-hmm. um, because he wanted it all to go back in the business and he wanted the business to grow. He had this desire to have, um, he wanted to create a legacy. That's yeah. really what he wanted. It wasn't, about, it wasn't about the farm. It wasn't about the money. It was about a legacy. He aspired to have his grandchildren working together on the farm. And so you can imagine what that mindset also instills in me. So I, I, growing up with him having that pride and that love for us and for this farm makes me super proud of what I do and why I do it. It really gives me the why that, that I need to push and to care and to strive to make a difference. That's that's awesome. That's fantastic. And, and you know, talking about your why, there's a great book out there called Start With Why that I would definitely mm-hmm. recommend to the listeners. Um, so let's talk on that legacy and transition planning. We touched on it earlier, but it's uh, yeah, people don't tell you this, but it's hard. Uh, transition planning is is difficult. Um, it's hard for some operations. Uh, for the prior generation to relinquish the control or to uh, verbalize what they want the legacy to be of the farming operation or even to get the ball rolling on on thinking about it because they've been working so hard for 40, 50, 60 years that they haven't taken time to think about what that looks like. So, you know, what steps has has your family and the farm operation they're taking 
towards transition planning? Uh, where have you turned to um, to get more information on there or to help you through the process? And, you know, what does that look like in the next few years, I guess? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I, the, the succession planning is and family planning, like this kind of thing, is, is very challenging. And we have had plenty of arguments and tears shed um, throughout the process. Um, and, you know, we've even lost, we lost one key member of our operation in the last three months, four months, because uh, everything's not put together or wasn't put together to their satisfaction, right? And and one side sees it one way and the other one sees it another. And, and I can kind of sit in the middle and kind of see both sides. But the frustration is real when you're trying mm-hmm. to do that. And the control side that you're talking about, um, how, how the generations, the, the beginning generations especially, do want to maintain control. And they're, they're nervous and they worry about what, you know, generation, especially generation three, generation one and two in our operation, worry about what generation three is going to do. Mm-hmm. And, and we, I get that. Um, I think all of us that are in Generation 3 understand that, but we also get frustrated with them for not trusting us. They're like, well, you got to trust us. And we're like, well, you got to trust us. And, right. You know, it, it does get very, very complicated and, and frustrating. Um, but what we have done is worked over, I mean, over the course of years and years to try and figure out based on how, because we had the Generation 1 to 2 is much more simple because it's father and son mother and daughter, right? Right. Um, and so what we did is we saw how that generation one to two, the ownership developed, the responsibility um, was, was spread out, how the function was. And then we tried to say, okay, you kind of set a precedent. We're going to try and use that as our baseline to say what we're going to do from generation two to generation three. And we that's what we're doing. I think the only, the only place where we struggle today is to try and figure out um, when it comes to a board of directors, how and when the transition should be, when, when generation one and two should relinquish their majority control to generation three. That's right. still something where we, we've struggled to come up with a solution. And we've gone to lots of people. We've gone to the CPAs. We've gone to people that specialize in succession planning. And our frustration has been, and since you work in this, this is probably good for you to hear, but our frustration has always been, don't, don't just listen to us and say, okay, well, you can try it this way if you think that's the way, you know, if you don't take what we've already done and try and make it work. It'd be really nice, we've said this many times, give us, this has been done hundreds, if not, in fact, it's been done thousands of times, but maybe you've done it hundreds of times. Give me an option A, an option B, an option C. Should, right. should the ownership go into a trust? An irrevocable trust should the should the ownership be controlled by a board and and how should that be done? Because we feel like we have had to to reinvent the wheel and that has been absolutely frustrating for us to feel like over and over and over that we're trying to just it's like we're trying to cut a you know we're, we're only trying to get 300 yards through this this jungle and there's a path there somewhere if someone just point us the start of the path but instead we're hacking our way through with machetes you know trying to get to the other side. Um, yeah. and, and so that has been challenging for us, man. And you're hitting home with so many people that are going through this process right now too. And, and one of the key points that, you know, I'll mention here at this point is the complexity does not get easier with time. You know, as you talk about these family generations of one to two and two to three, 
you know, what, what is three to four going to look like? And especially with Absolutely. the family dynamics, because all of a sudden is, you know, how do you write that into the transition planning and the legacy of, you know, when you have grandsons and granddaughters that are involved in the operation that maybe don't want to have part in it, but, you know, shares transition to them. How do you maintain ownership of the family? And then that board of directors too, um, you know, that, that can get really sticky when you have family involved with that. And one thing that, you know, we encourage people with the complexity of these size of operations too is to have um, a strategic advisory board as well. So not necessarily people that are involved uh, as far as family members or shareholders in the operation, but that strategic advisory board of people that are close to the operation, that understand the operation and can provide an objective opinion to say, hey, you know, I, I see where generation one and two are coming from here, but to provide some input as to, you know, maybe sticking up for generation three, because it's one thing, you know, if it comes from a family member, but it's it's another thing if it comes from someone outside of that. So that's, uh, you know, you're, you're definitely hitting home. Anything else on, on that transition planning? You, you made uh, me think of one more thing. Yeah, yeah you, you made me think of one more thing, and it's a pitfall that we had, and I've seen it not only in our farming operation, but elsewhere. You, you're, you're working with family, and you trust family, but you make decisions sometimes. You know, maybe a farm comes up before you have everything figured out, and you're like, well, let's get that farm bought. And you get it bought, and it gets structured in a specific way, and you just kind of were doing it to get it done. And you think, mm -hmm. well, well, we'll go back and we'll figure this out later. We got it bought. We have it figured out. We'll go figure it out. But when you realize, when you come back to it, maybe a year later, maybe three years later, my perception as generation three versus generation one of what we were going to do is not the same. Yeah. So if I can make any recommendation, if you, if you don't have everything figured out, at least write down what everyone's point of view is and make sure you have a, a, a boat so that you, you're on the same page. Because you'll find out later on that you, you're, you just, we can't. We're, we're talking about two generations of separation. We yeah. don't have the same perceptions and we don't look at things the same. Plus, as you stated, as you get more complex, as you're talking about more dollars, it's different. If you're talking about $10,000 versus $10 million, you're going to look at something differently. If it's 10000 and it's not exactly right, you're like, ah, it's no big deal. But it's $10 million and you look back, you're like, and, and something's not right. You're, you're a lot more apt to get frustrated and angry and dig your heels in. Um, and so do that in advance. Don't, don't kick the can down the road and think that you're going to come back to it. Make the decision, no matter how hard it is beforehand, so you don't get yourself in that position. That's a great point. Oh, and by the way, operations are still going on during this time. You know, things don't slow down when it comes to transition planning. And, you know, that's an excuse for, for people to avoid the transition planning conversation and avoid uh, the legacy planning that's associated with that. But it's so important to, uh, you know, really take time to step away and work on the business and not just in the business. And, you know, we see that with a lot of successful operations is they're the ones that are taking the time to do it. So definitely commend your family for, you know, focusing on that challenge and, uh, you know, trying to address it early on here. Yeah. With, uh, you know, leadership within the operation, is there is there anything that you do uh, from, from the bottom up within your employees and your operation uh, to ensure that you have quality leadership, good training, and, and good management within the farm there? Yeah, so we've, we've tried to have, um, to some extent, um, I don't know if you want to call it an intern program or a mentor program. I mean, we started with, with Craig and grandpa as those that, that have the knowledge 
and we've tried to, with that prop-specific type of work, put people in a position where they, they're a leader, but there's still oversight. And so mm-hmm. you, you look and you make your decision. So if, I'm, if, if it's me thinking of, and let's pretend that I'm the farm manager and my crop is onions, I'm going to look at that and I'm say, hey, Craig, I think I want to do an herbicide application. This is the rate. This is the herbicide. This is when I want to do it. And, and Craig, who's the, you know, the, the guy with the, the history, is going to look at that and say, yep or no. Um, but they're, you're going to talk through it. So you don't just let someone make the decision and make the mistake. Um, you, you try and let them initially, you know, the, the new person make that decision and then give feedback so that you're, it's not go do this. It's go see what you think you'd do and come back to me. Um, that has worked fairly well for us. I mean, we, as far as additional leadership, um, you know, we do, We've we've had a we have a list of books that we spread around um, that we try and read and have read through as a as a company to try and have everyone on the same page to some extent. We try and have common goals um, and talk through what those the three five ten year plan is. Ten years way out there, so I I, I mean we're not at a ten year, but three and five. Where are we going and how are we going to get there? And that doesn't mean it doesn't change, but we try and do that as well. And I think that's part of leadership too, because you got to be thinking ahead. Um, yes. And then when it comes to books, and I, I mean, that, those have been nice. We do a lot of the, um, uh, I believe it's Jim Collins. I always get his first name wrong, but Good to Great, Built to Last. Yep. Um, all of those series um, we've all read through and, and try and look at that. That doesn't mean we practice everything that's in that book, but it helps you get some um, common knowledge that can be shared otherwise. Another one that's uh, – a phenomenal book that is way outside the genre of that is, is uh, the four hour work week. I really yes. like the four hour work week just yes. because Tim makes you think about why you're doing all of this. And in farming and in all of our careers, we start doing something and we're just dreaming about retirement. Well, what, what's the point of retirement? If you're only, if, what are you working for? Like what, he just makes you finally drill down and say, okay, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I enjoy it. Or this is why I don't and make that adjustment now instead of waiting until you know 20 years later 30 years later and and if you don't you just make a change Mm -hmm. you know i think that's that's a great point too on those books you know burning through audiobooks is pretty easy when you're sitting in the tractor or you know driving between fields or whatever it is so i appreciate making those recommendations too as we kind of head into the spring uh planting season for most of the listeners here in the midwest and a lot of a lot of guys down south as well are getting going pretty heavy on things here. So I know we only have a few more minutes here. I want to touch on uh, a couple different things. And and one is safety. You know, how, how do you put an emphasis on safety within your operation there? Is there anything that you do to, uh, you know, mitigate that risk or, you know, what do you find effective in the operation there? Yeah, that is actually something we've just retouched on recently. Um, And and it's hard because what we do, especially in the field is so dangerous. There's a lot of risk there, and, and what we come back to is the example that you set. Um, you, more than any other person in the operation, your employees are going to watch you and how you operate and how you function, um, and you have to set the example because it's so easy to say, well, you know, I'm the owner, or I'm the boss, or I'm this, or I'm that. You know, rules don't apply to me. Um, that's the very first place and probably the most impactful way that you're going to change or improve your culture towards safety. Um, 
unfortunately, you can also see accidents happen. I had a, a good friend of mine this year that got caught up and killed in his harvester this year. That was something that should have never happened, mm-hmm. obviously, and something that was extremely tragic. But it, it, when those things are in our agriculture are going to happen, and we need to use those as a catalyst for change and for improvement. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the place to start is with yourself. And I think the important thing, too, is having the discussion and implementing those things before an accident happens. Because when you look at so many of those in the industry that are huge advocates for safety or that have a, a, a true passion for it, a huge majority of those are people that have been affected by a tragedy close to home that inspired them to, you know, be these safety advocates. And I don't want any operation or any of the farms that we work with to, you know, hear this podcast and have to go through that in their family in order to be inspired for change. And I know safety gets thrown around a lot and it's like, well, you know, what do you do? And sometimes safety can be um, not not necessarily like a, a blacklisted term or whatever, but people think safety and for some reason in their minds they think, oh, it's going to be these ridiculous measures that we have to take. It doesn't have to be that. It can be something that is easily implemented, something that is practical. And like you said there, being the leader and showing by example of what that safety operation should look like, I think is such a, a crucial piece. And so as we have, you know, farm operations heading into heavy field work here, definitely just want to encourage that and I'll continue to, to beat that war drum uh, until people go deaf because it's, it's truly so important on the safety side. <clears throat> With, uh, you know, marketing and content, you're, uh, obviously have a very active presence on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I think that's where I had originally come across some of your work and learn about what you do on the operation, and I always enjoy the videos and the content you're producing. Uh, why why do you think that's so important as not only a farmer, but then on the, you know, I know it's part of the marketing side as well. Why do you think that's so important on those platforms? You know, it, it really is important uh, because we as people in farming or farmers don't realize how little the people that are three and four generations removed from the farm are, how, how little the people that are in um, urban environments understand about their food gets to them. We really don't, we have no, no idea. And, and the reason that what was my catalyst to begin really on my own, we've, we've been on Facebook for a long time and had content, but, LinkedIn, I really took the lead and did it myself. And the reason that that happened, I was at a, I was, I was at a sales meeting. I was in Los Angeles. I believe, no, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. I was in Phoenix, um, and, and I had a dinner meeting with um, an onion buyer and um, another guy that had just started with a produce company who was also going to be a produce and onion buyer. And we were sitting at dinner and talking about, you know, well, here's, here's what, you know, the, the, the packing shed looks like, and this is what the packaging looks like, and you know, kind of going back and forth and, and sharing pictures about operations and, and all of that, that, that stuff. And, and the conversation came to the point where the guy's like, well, you've got all these pictures. Can you show me a, a picture of the onion tree? <laughs> Did your jaw the hit guy, the floor? Yeah. I, the guy literally thought like he, this, this guy is a produce buyer. This is what he does <laughs> for a living. And he doesn't know that onions don't go grow on a tree. And I, and I realized at that point, that moment, that I need to take the simple things that I do every day and I need to show it to my customers 
and my future customers and my potential customers and whoever else might see it uh, in that process and show them what, how your food is grown, where it comes from, and also the effort and infrastructure and dollars that it takes to do what we do. So many people think, oh, you're sending onions to me. And they, what they imagine is people in a field grabbing an onion off the ground and stuffing it into a bag. Yes. It's not how it works at all. Mm-hmm. They think of, um, you know, the same thing with the asparagus and, and all the crops. They, they cannot understand the scale at which we operate. And how can we ask a customer to pay us more, more money? How can we ask for more money if they don't understand what it takes to get the product to them? So right. it's, it's both for the consumer and for the wholesaler and the distributor and the retailer. Like, hey, guys, this takes, this takes a heck of a lot of money, a heck of a lot of effort to get this to you. And when I ask you for that extra 50 cents, I'm really not asking for that much. This mm-hmm. tractor here is worth how much your house costs. Do you think right. you could give me another 50 cents a bag? <laughs> and, and it goes a long way. It really yeah. does. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to say it like that, but that's really what I wanted to do. I'm like, look, this is, this is what it takes. I need that mm-hmm. 50 cents. I'm not being greedy. I need the 50 cents. Let me show you why. Right. Well, and I think in agriculture in general, and, you know, this is my personal opinion on this, but I think farmers and those in agriculture in general don't do a good enough job of asking ourselves why the consumer should care. You know, why Why should they care um, of the hard work that we are putting into this? Why do they care that that tractor costs as much as a house? But I think by showing them the hard work and the and the dedication and the complexity that goes into this, that that's a why. You know, and tell them the story of, of the family involved in the operation. When it, when it comes to marketing, what I always find myself asking is, you have to resort to why they should care, why this makes a difference on the product, and why it would make them want to buy the product. And, you know, the videos that you share, I think, do a fantastic job of doing that. And I would encourage anybody listening, not just uh, not just those who have an agribusiness or have a direct-to-consumer business, but even just farmers out there, when you look at the number of people that are truly involved in agriculture, whatever the statistics are, it's a very little amount compared to everyone else that's out there in the world. And it's something that the people in our country, the people of the world, our government has entrusted us with that. But we also have a responsibility to tell that story, to share the message and, you know, to make to make them understand why, you know, why should they care? And, you know, I just I commend you for everything that that you do on that. Do you have any other comments kind of on the marketing or content piece there, Shay? No, I just just that it's worth your effort. It's, it's a slow process, um, but people really want to know. I mean, if you if you go find me, like an example, if any of those that, that are on here that are on TikTok, go look me. I'm Shay the Farm Kid. Yes. Okay. And and the farmers on here are going to laugh when they go look at these videos on on TikTok. But go look me up, open that app, and go see which videos have the most views. It mm-hmm. will blow your mind. Like I just. I just create content. I don't, I don't try and have, you know, uh, anything specific. If I'm doing something, I have a chance to shoot a video and it's 60 seconds long. I do it. I'll spend a couple of minutes editing and I'll post it. But the videos that have the most views, you probably wouldn't spend 10 seconds looking at. Right. But I've got, I've got one with the asparagus line running that I did two days ago. That'll probably hit 400,000 views today. Yes. And it's, it's and amazing too at how easy it is because you have it, 
in the palm of your hand or in your pocket, all you have to do is take a video and share it. And it doesn't matter. You know, some people out there probably don't even know what, what TikTok is, and that's not a bad thing by any means, but, you know, send it to family members, send it to your customers, send it Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, TikTok. It's so easy to, to spread that message that I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there that it's worth your time to do it. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a responsibility to to teach and to foster appreciation for what we do. And we are all working on razor thin margins and probably negative ones for the next who knows how many months. We need the consumer to be on our side and we need them to be appreciative of where their food comes from. And they need, we need them to be an advocate for us as well. We can't just be advocates for ourselves. We have to convince people that what we're doing is of value. So when we ask for their help and when we ask for their, their loyalty, they're on our side. And they're never right. going to do that if we don't share a message that proves the value that we bring to them. Exactly. You don't just want someone to look at the $50 billion in aid that farm and agriculture has been given across the country and make, make them question that. They need to, they need to understand that message. And, and that's kind of what I want to end on here. Um, you know, I alluded to the fact that you've been, uh, you know, crazy busy with interviews and everything else. So I want to thank you again for taking the time here to join us on the Eggview pitch. But with the, you know, some of the supply chain uh, issues that have been going on, uh, you've done some great content on that, looking at the production and the system that we have. So as you've had time for some of this to develop, not only over the last couple months, but I would say even more intensively in the last seven to 10 days, what are, what are some of your thoughts on the a so-called crisis that we have going on now, whatever you want to call it, where do you think they can improve as a, as a country, as producers? Uh, what can, what can we be doing differently? Yeah, that's a hard one. I, I can, I can, I can talk about where things are going a lot better than I can talk about how to improve but the one place we can improve, and I've already alluded to this, is the fact that we need – it's a little bit of a – so vegetables are different than commodities in that the commodities market depends a ton on export. Um, and, and those of us that are on the vegetable side, are we're always fighting and frustrated by imports, right? And you don't get imports without exports. And so, you know, we're in a, we're in a challenging situation now where we, we need – some protection for our markets domestically because we've lost so much of our market share. Um, and we still have plenty of product coming from Holland and Spain. And when I say product, I mean onions coming from Holland and Spain and Canada and Mexico. And we don't need here right now. Mm -hmm. We have the strongest currency um, of those countries that were just named. And that's where everyone wants to send their product. Right. So, um, and, and that's the same problem, right, for, the, for, for export as well. That, that, that strong dollar is hard for all of us. Yes. Um, so I don't know what we can do other than trying to make sure that we, we foster an appreciation, again, for what we do. I think we also need to realize, I feel like agriculture right now is the canary in the coal mine. And because if you look at other manufacturing at the moment, they're shut down. If you make um, plastic widgets and fly swatters, and um, washing machines and dryers and even airplanes, you're not operating today. Yes. And we are. Those of us mm -hmm. that are growing, creating, packing, and marketing food, we are operating every day. And it is a scary freaking world that we're looking out at right now. Mm -hmm. um, and 
what do we do and how how do we how can we be proactive i i wish i had the answer but i can say that we we have to we need people to understand where we're going here because i don't know if you're concerned about it but i'm really concerned about what the next 12 to 18 months brings for the entire economy but I think agriculture right now, we have a better understanding of what the next 12, 18 months is than anyone else. Because they have to come back to work and work for three or four months before they're even in the same position of understanding um, that we are. Yes, what we're looking at right now. No, mm-hmm. that's, that's a great point. And, you know, like I said, I think, I think you've done a great job just um, spreading the message, sharing the videos, and, and telling your story. Uh, so I want to thank you for that. Any last thoughts here kind of as we wrap up, Shay? No, I think I've kind of said it all. Um, I, I wish everybody good luck and uh, everybody to hope everybody's safe. And we'll just have to, we're, we're going to have to fight hard. All of us are going to have to dig deep, I feel like. And we're going to all have to dig deep and give it everything we've got for the next, you know, 12, 18 months. And what that entails, I don't think anybody knows. Um, and, and I don't mean to be that chicken little, the sky is falling guy here in this <laughs> conversation. But I, I mean, at least for myself and for, for my industry, it's it's scary and we're we're all going to be in a different place um you know in the future this the, the the entire perspective of the world has changed entire perception of the world has changed and the entire attitude and 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 mobility and supply chain of the world will will change and we are going to have to adapt with it if we're going to be in business right well and i you know i think farmers out there in general i don't know a single farmer that would say I don't work hard. Well, well, what does hard work mean? And what does that look like when, you know, the tire hits the pavement, you put your nose to the grindstone, what does that actually look like? And I think as we uh, grind through the rest of 2020 here and look beyond that, uh, there's going to be a lot of telling things here. So Shay, I really appreciate the time. Um, thank you so much for your perspective that you bring to the listeners here on the Ag View Pitch. I would love to catch up with you down the road again at some point And, um, yeah, just best of luck out there. We'll all be thinking of you guys. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will catch you next time on the Ag View Pitch.